Welcome to the Unraveling Science podcast, the podcast where we listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Hanlon, and I'm so happy to be back for season four. This season, I'll be bringing you stories mainly featuring Irish scientists abroad, but we'll also feature some key Irish researchers working here at home. We have such a diverse season to look forward to, from ecology to physics, paleontology to neuroscience, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin. Unraveling Science. This season, I'm extremely grateful to be continuing to work with our wonderful sponsors, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. You can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. So, Dr. Kieran Murphy Royal, Assistant Professor in the Department of Neuroscience at the University of Montreal, is my guest on the podcast today. So Kieran's research focuses on investigating the links between stress, astrocyte metabolism and neuronal plasticity. Kieran has been the recipient of a number of awards such as the NSERC Discovery Grant, Marie Curie Fellowship and the NARSAD Young Investigator Award. And in June of 2020, he started his own lab in the University of Montreal. So with all of this in mind, I'm very excited, Kieran, to chat to you today. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot, Megan. Thanks for the invite. Okay, so I have so much I want to talk to you about. Tell me what life was like growing up. Were you always kind of had a keen interest in science or did that come when you were more in secondary school or what were you like when you were 10 or 11? Yeah, so I guess I didn't really have, uh, there's no scientists in the family, no no university professors, nothing like that. So it's just, I guess, an ordinary kid growing up with just parents working in different jobs. So so yeah, for me, the, I guess the science kind of came in in secondary school as we went into there and I got more into biology or chemistry, these things. And it was just a subject that I really enjoyed. So so I remember, I guess, when I was doing the junior cert, I did some some classes, I guess, picked music as well. I was really terrible at music. That was like <laughs> one of my, it really was really bad. But so then going to leaving cert, I just picked on the science subjects, so like biology and chemistry. And that gave me, I guess, a taste of what was to come then when I went on to university. But it was really there. We had a good teacher. I had the same teacher for biology and chemistry. So he was really great. And kind of the class was, it was a lot of fun. Actually, I did all my, did my primary school mainly in Dublin, in Clondalkin and, and actually in, in Tala and Kingswood. And then I moved out to Newbridge in Kildare uh, for my secondary school and then back in, of course, for, for uh, university in Trinity. So so yeah, when I was in Kildare, then I kind of stuck to the science and got got into that. That's interesting. So what was it like moving from like, you know, Dublin out to somewhat more of a countryside yeah, <laughs> scene? Yeah, like at that time, I don't know what it was about it, but there's loads of people from Dublin moving just outside. So Newbridge is like 45 minute drive. So yeah, I was still had a maybe a stronger Dublin accent. Now. I've lived away from Ireland for quite some time. So my accent, even when I talk to people at first, colleagues here and all, I kind of have a very neutral accent now at this point and oh, I didn't even know you're from Ireland you know they don't really, they can't pick up where I'm from until I until I get chatting properly until I kind of loosen up I guess but yeah moving from Dublin to Newbridge that was great I mean we moved into like a nice place it was quite safe I guess the times have changed now but it was where you could like you know go out in the start of the day and come home for dinner your parents wouldn't know where you are that kind of <laughs> that kind of childhood so it was it was nice. I mean, I enjoyed it and made lots of friends in Newbridge too that that I've kept in touch with even since. You know, so it's, I enjoyed growing up there. I thought it was great. And moving back then to you know starting your undergrad degree in Trinity, were there other degrees in mind, or did you always want to, to do science in Trinity? Yeah, I guess as as a kid, then I mean, you think you know like all these things. You know, if you as my mum would say to me and stuff, you know, if you get a good education, you'll get a 
well, well-paid job. You'll be doing good the rest of your life. So before, I guess, getting interested in science, you know, have ideas on like law or medical school, being a doctor, these kinds of things. And yeah, it was that was kind of just in my mind, something like that. Maybe veterinary was kind of a, a thing that I was interested in, but it's really came down to the sciences I thought were super interesting once I got towards the end of, I guess, uh, leaving cert. And, and some friends of mine were interested in science too. So basically, like a friend, Sean, who I still stay in touch with, he... He picked science and Trinity number one. I was like, you know what, if he's doing, I'll, I'll give it a shot too. So it's just more <laughs> like to stay with a pal, really. And that was one, one of the motivations as well as enjoying science was to go to Trinity with one of my friends, you know, and have a, have a laugh. So yeah, that was kind of, I put down on my, on my CAO, I put down only science degrees, really. I think it was, you know, whatever, Trinity would have been number one. And then all the other different places that did a more general science degree, Maynooth and UCD and all these places were down there. So I was lucky to get to get enough points to get my first pick and did did sean get his first pick as well oh yeah he did he's much smarter than me this guy so he was like he was clearly gonna get in it was whether i was gonna get in or not so that was the real question so yeah we went we did general science then in trinity that uh general science degree and then we split off eventually uh, he went into zoology and i went into human physiology so yeah we kind of we eventually i eventually took my own path but i was following him for quite some time <laughs> well it worked out very well for you to be fair <laughs> Yeah, um, that's good, yeah. So talk to me kind of near the end of your degree. You know, I know you did a fourth year project with Professor Marina Lynch, who I've had on the podcast as well. And what was that experience like? And, you know, before that project, were you thinking of PhD or like long term science career or what, what were you thinking you were going to do after college? Yeah, I honestly had no idea. I, uh, I didn't think about doing PhDs, didn't really think about what was coming next. You know, as people are, I guess, when, you, when I went through the first two years of general science, then I really enjoyed biology and the bit of neuroscience that we did. So that's why I picked human physiology, because it was, it was quite interesting and kind of did a bit of everything, not just there was a neuroscience. It would be one of the first few years that the neuroscience honors was there. But I still went to human physiology, which would have been classically had all the neuroscience classes, because we still had lots of the same classes as they did. And yeah, people then in my class were starting to think about going into medicine, you know, the whatever graduate medicine courses that were out there. And lots of them did, actually. But it was when I, I did a summer, I guess, a summer student project in Marina's lab uh, in between third and fourth year of undergrad. And that was really when then I saw, you know, this is actually a job, you know, being a researcher kind of thing, not just being a professor. I guess I didn't really understand what other things professors would do apart from just teaching undergrads. So, so yeah, it was a summer project. I got like talking to a postdoc there, Derek Costello, who has his own lab in UCD now. And he just worked with him doing electrophysiology. And it was literally like a broom cupboard that they, it was genuinely a cupboard, had no windows. Um, and they put electrophysiology rig in there. So you work with brain slices and you do look at synaptic activity. And uh, working with him, that was just such a great laugh that summer that I really wanted to come back for my honors degree. And then talking to him a lot more about what kind of careers are out there and available. That's kind of where I really learned that there is, you know, you can get, you can do research, you can get paid for this and kind of get a career in research. So that that's kind of where I learned all about it was when I got exposed to actual lab work. I didn't yeah. know about it before that really. And even just kind of what you're saying there that until you spoke to, you know, the postdoc in your lab or the PhD in your lab, you didn't really know what like careers were out there. It was that kind of highlights the importance of having mentors at such an early stage and perhaps he had looked out for you and was kind of telling you what's what. Yeah, I mean, if anything, he tried to, I guess, dissuade me from going into the into the research game because it's so tough, right? He told me that he wasn't sugarcoating it at all and would tell me, you know, this is really tough and, you know, people from whatever making it in this career and getting a stable job is very hard. So he kind of told me all of this and I 
I still, I guess, naively or blindly says, you know, I'll be grand, you know, I'll be, <laughs> I'll give it a shot and see what happens. So, so yeah, it was really the importance of chatting with somebody who's there and in it that I didn't have anybody, I guess, in my family at least that would that would have been able to guide me in any way in kind of the research or academic background. So, so yeah, it was really nice. And I, I mean, Trinity is really, everyone was very friendly there. It was a big community. I mean, there was like Christmas parties for human physiology where we had, I guess, everyone would all the undergrads are in third and fourth year, plus all the professors and everything would go for a dinner and have a few drinks. And it was really, it was really kind of a nice community I found. So that was uh, kind of also made me think, you know, this, this is, seems like a great job. You get to have parties and go with students, you know, and, and, and have them in your lab and stuff. So it seemed like a cool career to me. So I know that you then did your PhD in France. So how did that come about? And did you ever think that you would stay in Ireland or was always going abroad on the cards once you knew you wanted to do a PhD? Yeah, I mean, that's the same with what Derek was telling me um, back in the day. It's like, you know, if you really want to make it, you get it's good to move abroad for a while at least and do some of your time that was at least one way of doing it. You know, it seemed to be one of the things that could help you in your career. Not necessary. It's not, I don't think it should be necessary either, but it can be helpful. So I started looking around and, and seeing... At that time, it was I was finishing my undergrad in 2010. Yeah, it was like right around the recession, I guess, when people were starting to leave. And so I was initially thinking about London, all of the good universities and research places in London seemed really interesting. And then I kind of had the idea, well, why not try and learn a language too? I wasn't necessarily good at languages in secondary school. I was okay. I did French. And so I said, uh, well, let's have a look in France because I researched the papers and all are written in English. So, you know, mm-hmm. how hard can it be? So I kind of, I applied to some, a PhD program in Paris and that, that was kind of one that was just very easy to find. I guess that was the main thing. They had this um, PhD program you do like rotation your first year and then you, and then you pick a lab. So I applied to that and then I just like looked on, I think it was maybe Fenn's website or something. I was looking at positions everywhere and I saw one available position in Bordeaux. So um, it was on astrocytes, which is type of like brain cell. It's not a neuron. So it's kind of, there's other brain cells and that are not only neurons. And so some of these cells that I had kind of dipped my toes in and rained as well, glial cells, all these kinds of things. And so I just shot my CV into that position as well. And I got a phone call interview for the one in Paris. And then I got an in-person interview for the one in Bordeaux. The guy flew me down uh, to France to do an interview. And I was uh, terrified, you know, it it was pretty crazy at that point. I was thinking, I can't believe they're spending money to get me to come down here. So yeah, I flew onto Bordeaux for like four days, went into the interview in a lab down there is this guy, uh, Stefan Ollier. So he's like a big name in the astrocyte field. Yeah. And I went in in like proper three-piece suit, waistcoat, tie, jacket, everything. I was like, and I, I remember going into the interview and he he came up in like hoodie jeans and a pair of runners. <laughs> and so I he was like, oh, you're better dressed than I am, you know? So I kind of, it's kind of funny that I, I, did, I didn't know what to dress in according yeah. to my dress code. So I just said, you know, it's better to be overdressed than underdressed. And so, so yeah, luckily in Trinity, we had presented our, you know, our final year honors projects and we had nice presentations made, introductions. We did like Trinity in that sense was really good for the, like, you know, working on presentation skills and all these things. So when we sat down for the interview, I just whipped out that presentation um, and went through it with him sitting at the computer side by side with Stefan. And he just thought it was great that, you know, I presented a nice little picture, nice story. And then I think it was that alone because I kind of presented something that he didn't know about. And also it was a Marie Curie PhD fellowship. So it was going to be more international. And so I think as well, having like speaking English as a first language also kind of helped for the international nature of the 
of the program. So yeah, he offered me the position then and I said, okay, yeah. There and then, like on the day? Uh, I think it was like maybe a couple of days later. I went back, I went back to Ireland and, uh, and yeah, then he sent me an email saying, yeah, I'm trying to come to Bordeaux. That's it. So I just said, all right, let's do it. You know, so. That is crazy. But like, had you just finished your, your degree? Yeah, this would have been, this would have been literally right after. I think this would have been maybe June or something like that. June or July. I would have just finished a couple of weeks beforehand. And yeah, that, that would have been it. So I was really, really shy because I started in my PhD. Then I moved to France at the like last week of July. Oh God. So you didn't have like a long, so, you know, I'm thinking of like, <laughs> I finished my, um, my undergrad degree in June and then yeah. I wasn't finished. I wasn't starting my PhD till October. And I went like for two months traveling around Central America. So I was like, I'm going to be having no life for the next three years, you know? No, I, I just, I just went straight. I said, well, kind of in that kind of theme of traveling as well. I said, well, this is traveling, you know, I'm moving somewhere new. Exactly. Head straight down. So to me, that was kind of my travel. So, so yeah, I mean, in the meantime, I did some evening courses in French. I did, I did, uh, went to Alliance Francaise in Marseille Trinity. There's one there. And I went in and it was five weeks, four hours a week. So like two evenings, like two hours, two evenings. Yeah. And then I moved to France with like, I guess, 16 hours of French in my pocket, 16, 20 hours of French and thought I'd be grand. And I wasn't, it was really tough. Was it? Okay. <laughs> it was very hard at the beginning. The lab meetings were in French. I was the only uh, foreign person in the lab everyone was French and so when I got there even in Bordeaux at the time in 2010 it wasn't it was there were some Irish pubs you know so that's where I'd go and try to chat to a barman or whatever talk, chat to somebody in the pub for some company at the beginning and yeah in the lab then I I mean the PI spoke perfect English right it's presenting all around the world but there were people in the lab who didn't speak English right and so so I kind of uh, just picked it up picked up French as I went I moved in with some French students they're all undergrads uh, I was starting my PhD. There's a room in in a four bedroom apartment, so I just moved in with three other people I didn't know uh, and learned French uh, just like by speaking it. Right? Oh my god! Well, I suppose now you're based that you're based in Montreal, which I think is French speaking. I- I'm yeah. assuming you're fluent now. Well, now it's good. Yeah. Now now it's fine. I mean, it was tough at the beginning, and then I I guess full immersion. Really, that's what it was with the lab and everything. There were some then some PhD students spoke English, and we got on quite well, but. Overall, my day-to-day in France was in French. Everything I did would have been like better shopping, whatever, meeting my housemates. It was pretty exhausting and tiring. I was like, every night I'd have a headache just from, from trying to learn a language. But yeah, now now it's good. So I kind of spent, I spent four years in France, four and a half years. And yeah, my French then was decent by the end. So it's still, I still have a better spoken French than written French. You know, I kind of, I wouldn't say I'm illiterate, but I'm definitely not great. I wouldn't be able to write science in French for example right I wouldn't be able to write anything high level yeah text messages and all these things are fine but yeah for speaking French it's fine and now even at the University of Montreal this is the French speaking university right it's kind of bilingual in Montreal but it's more French I would say and so now I even have to start teaching soon in uh, French too okay and when you were in your undergrad or not in your undergrad sorry in your during your PhD would you have to present your work like at lab meetings and everything in French no, I, I do that in English. Then. Okay, so, uh, okay. So yeah, I would just, whatever. And then eventually, I mean, over the course of the time I was there, more foreign people would get hired. Just kind of, it kind of happened while in between 2010 or 2014, Bordeaux itself got much more dynamic and international and also the lab did too. So we got some people from England and some other people coming in, American people as well. So at some point, I don't know when it was, maybe it was maybe a year or so in, it's just the lab meetings had to switch to English. And that was, that was great. I mean, for me, it was really great. It was tough, but 
it was the best way to learn. So I kind of, I, I, in the end, like, I guess you got to be careful what you ask for. I got what I wanted. I got to get a PhD and learn French the hard way. But yeah, now the lab, I'm pretty sure the lab now runs in English entirely, right? So. I mean, undertaking a PhD is such a huge, like, um, challenge at the best of times. So to actually do it in a, in a country where it's not your first language. I, yeah, I don't know how you did that. <laughs> I mean, in the end, I, I mean, I wouldn't do it, have it any other way. It was yeah. tough at the beginning. The first few months were really tough. And I wondered if I was going to stick at it. And I, I did. And it was fine. So I just, I guess it was just sticking it out. But it was, uh, it was great. I mean, it was really international. My PhD abroad was, it was, I, I loved it. Like we kind of got decent salaries that Marie Curie fellowship. So mm-hmm. we were, we felt quite rich at the time with no, no um, responsibilities and just, yeah and you're in a new country I suppose you were probably like like you were saying you were traveling you were going on holidays nearly yeah it felt like a holiday most days felt like a holiday right you go in the lab and and get work done and then it was yeah going visiting places and taking the train to Spain and all these kinds of things you can do it was really enjoyable yeah so what was your kind of PhD focused on yeah yeah so in, in that lab then I worked on how neurotransmitters are taken away from the synapse so you get whatever your neurons communicating with neurotransmitters and so it was glutamate so I looked at how this neurotransmitter glutamate was sucked up by astrocytes these cells that look like stars these star-like cells that I focused on so I started my work on astrocytes these brain cells and the PhD and I'm still working on now in my own lab it's kind of focused now but um but yeah looking at how the neurotransmitter was taken up and basically fundamental research you know there was no disease in mind um, although that could be implicated in stuff like epilepsy where there's too much neurotransmitter and you kind of get these seizures but yeah, at that time, just looking at how neurotransmitters are taken up and how astrocytes do their job. So it was it was nice. I mean, we used nice microscopy techniques, looking at how the proteins moved on the surface of the cells. So looking at them, it was like surface diffusion, so live tissue and looking at the movement of proteins. Um, and then if we make the synapses fire, see what happens to the, to the proteins. How do they move faster, do they move slower, these kinds of things. And yeah, that was, that was the PhD. So it kind of worked out well. It was like, I didn't, I kind of focused on the one project. I didn't have this really collaborative thing because I was working between two labs in the end, the one who did the microscopy and the one who did the biology, the astrocyte work. And so being in the middle of two labs, I was never really overlapping with other people. And so I just, yeah, I got one, my one paper on a PhD and a review paper. So, but it was good. I mean, I loved it. It was great. And you then moved to Canada. So talk to me about like making that move. Was it, how did you set up that postdoc, I suppose? Yeah, so the, the postdoc then was set up when I went to a conference, went to a Glial conference. So it's the Gordon conference in Glial. I was lucky to be able to go to that. There, this is my, my boss, Stefan. He had a buddy who worked on stress, uh, JD, who was in JD Baines in Calgary. And so he kind of just got chatting to JD. I thought what he did was cool. And he was like, oh, we're looking for people, you know, if you want to do a postdoc uh, in Calgary, you know, that, oh, so I honestly wouldn't have been able to put Calgary on a map at the time, right? I wouldn't be able to point it out whereabouts it is. It wasn't on my radar at all. And then, yeah, I just looked, looked into more of the lab. It was based on stress. And I thought, you know, no one's really looking like at stress and astrocytes. This is kind of like psychological stress, like swim stress or foot shocks kind of stress. And no one's really looking at that in the astrocyte field. So I said, you know, if I go there, I can do something new that, that I didn't find was happening. And so that was the main motivation that JD uh, seemed really cool seemed like a nice guy and doing cool research and uh, and it kind of gave me some space to do something new. So yeah, I, w- I went and again, I visited, I visited JDeep's lab for a week in, in Calgary and saw them. That's basically right at the Rockies, the Rocky Mountains in Canada. So it's a really pretty place. 
to like the 1988 Olympics were in Calgary. So you got all of like the Olympic infrastructure for anybody who's into sports. There's like whatever, uh, speed skating rinks and ski jumps and cross country trails and all these things. So it's a, it's a pretty active city. And so that was kind of really cool. I enjoyed cycling a lot when I was in my PhD, some cycling and running. And so I thought that'd be a cool place to go. The mountains are there. It's like nice outdoors place and the science seems cool. So that was, that was factored into my decisions. And, and uh, I thought that would be nice to get away because I really enjoyed France so much. Actually kind of fell in love with France a little bit. Um, and I thought that if I went away, I could come back to France and, and kind of get a permanent position there. And, and that wouldn't be too close to home, too far from home being in France, right? Permanently, mm -hmm. if I could land there eventually, because when I was living in Bordeaux, I'd go home maybe once or twice a year. And so, yeah, I thought, let's go to Calgary for a bit and then I can come back. And I never did a couple of times. Well, not, not yet anyway. Yeah, because you've now, I suppose, moved to Montreal. And, and you know, one of the things I want to ask you, I suppose, in the latter part of our conversation is, you know, the kind of stages of setting up your own group and that kind of move from postdoc to PI, essentially. But I suppose before that, let's just talk um, a little bit about the research. Yeah. So obviously you've mentioned astrocyte and stress. So I suppose if you want to, you know, talk to me a little bit about, you know, the role of the astrocyte, I suppose what you have then found recently with regard to stress and uh, how that impacts them. So the astrocytes are, I guess, uh, they were, they used to be overlooked, but you can't really say that anymore. Lots of people are studying astrocytes in the brain. And so they're the cells that more or less lie between the blood vessels and the synapses in the neurons. So they're kind of linking the two. That's one of the things, one of the major things they do. So they can control, you know, blood flow in the brain. So they're controlling essentially metabolism. And so when brain regions get active, your neurons start firing, the astrocytes sense that signal and they can cause the blood vessels to get bigger, to dilate and you get more blood flow to that region. And so they can also grab glucose from the blood and give it to neurons in kind of in a different form and in lactate form of the kind of that metabolite. And so they tend to feed neurons and take away the waste too. There's a really nice paper several years ago showing that when you sleep, and the astrocytes suck up all like the, the waste in the brain and, and dump it back into the blood to get rid of it from the brain. So like just showing how important sleep is in these cells. And so, yeah, so we're looking at how, right now we're looking at metabolism. That's what I did in my postdoc just by chance. I kind of wanted to do stress and glutamate uptake at the synapse. And that project actually went to a dead end after a year. So I started my postdoc and, and was going on a line, was getting some okay kind of interesting data and got to a certain point and just none of it made sense anymore. And so I kind of had to pivot a little bit. So I was in one lab and I got to the end of a year and, and the PI, you know, Jade was, you know, this isn't, this is not, it's kind of confusing. It's not really going anywhere. You can think about what's going on. And so in the end, I just actually put that project in a drawer and started a brand new project after a year and looking at just kind of keeping my horizons a bit more open. I think I was too focused on the one thing that I wanted to see change, glutamate at the synapse and didn't work out at the time. So got into the metabolism just by chance. It's okay, what is going on? If they're not, if the glutamate uptake isn't being affected, what is kind of, what could be happening? So looked at metabolism, how the astrocytes feed the synapses and can kind of look at synaptic function. And so I saw that with stress, the astrocytes were no longer feeding the synapses and you couldn't get, you know, proper synaptic plasticity. So people have shown that stress impairs learning and memory, especially with hippocampus, you know, your spatial memory. So that's always been impaired hippocampal learning and memory with stress. And so the synaptic plasticity is down, but I kind of, I thought, you know, astrocytes could be involved in that mechanism. So that was my postdoc work, kind of placing those cells in there that it's actually because with stress, the astrocytes can no longer feed the synapses that you get this 
reduce plasticity and reduce learning and memory. So, so that's kind of kind of a nice little story that I was able to manage to get out from the postdoc and kind of led me to my current position now at University of Montreal, where I'm taking it up a level. So the stress I used was an acute stress, just stress them out one time and you get these effects that don't last forever. They're kind of short-term effects um, on learning and memory. And now we're using chronic stress. So I'm kind of looking more at, right now we're doing one on early life stress. So early life adversity. So with pups, if they have like bad maternal environment, I guess the mother can't take care of them properly. You see these effects last long-term and they're more stress sensitive. So I'm looking at how um, stress sensitivity based on, you know, experiences, I wouldn't say as a child because they're, they're mice, but adverse experiences early in life and how that shapes your brain development and how it affects how stress sensitive you are for let's say depression and anxiety, these kinds of ideas. And so we're, we're yeah, replacing astrocytes into this equation now again, they've been overlooked in this field a little bit in the stress field. So we're trying to see what's going on. Is the metabolism impaired or uh, other factors that might, uh, that might affect synaptic function through astrocytes. And how do you kind of model that acute stress? Like what do you do in your animals? So in, the, in this case, I just made them swim for 20 minutes. So the mice hate swimming, they're field animals, right? So a lot of people do Morris water mazes and things like this with mice. And I guess you just have to train them to be used to swimming in water. So my mice, and that's fine, they eventually get used to it. But if you take a mouse and put it in some water, a bucket of water, they, they can swim, they don't sink, but they don't necessarily like it. They're a field animal. And I mean, it's night and day when you put a rat in water, you put a rat in water, they can dive down, they kind of swim really nice. Um, and so, yeah, with mice, you put them in, I put them in water just one time and I look at the effects then after that. So it's quite brief uh, yeah. stressor, but it's pretty intense for them, right? They've never been in water before. They don't know what it's like. And so it's, a, it's quite an intense stressor, I guess. But yeah, that's how I modeled before. And now with the early life stress, it's a bit different. Yeah. So when you're saying with the chronic stress and, and early life stress, if they've got like poor maternal, I suppose, activity or if their mothers weren't taking care of them, like, do you just take the female mice away from them? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that, that's part of the protocol. You can like reduce the bedding a little bit. You can take the mother away for a few hours a day. It's not, it's not extensive. A few hours a day, every day for like during a, a window of time during development before they get taken separate from the mother as whatever young adults. Um, yeah, just take the mother away for a little bit and keep them on heating pads. Everything's kind of nice and comfortable and the, the pups all stay together, but it's just that little bit of separation. I think it stresses the mother out, the mother mouse more. Okay. And so it's that kind of stress that when they get reintroduced, I think is also factors in. So, I mean, there's multiple things factoring into that, but it seems with the learning and memory that we see, I mean, it's the effects on those babies it lasts and when they're adults. But yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty intense, I guess. Um, but it's, a uh, it's a good model of what, what you'd see in humans, right? With a, a maternal neglect or a kind of child abuse, these kinds of things that you would see stress at certain developmental windows and how they compare. So I suppose if the astrocyte is at the interface between, you know, your um, blood vessels and the neurons and it's feeding all this information. So what nutrients would it be transferring over? And, and during stress, is it less nutrients or are they not transferring any over? Yeah, so that, that's it. So yeah, we're looking at, we're trying to figure out what synaptic events really need astrocytes. So there's many different ones, like, you know, just normal synaptic function or plasticity events. And so what we're seeing, yeah, that astrocytes are, they can store energy. They're the only brain cells that can store some energy. Your neurons can't store anything. They're just constantly taking it and using it immediately. Um, astrocytes can store glucose as glycogen, same way your liver does. Then they can release, break down glycogen to lactate, which I've heard some people before in your podcast talk about lactating cancer. 
Um, so basically, astrocytes can produce lactate and they release it to transporters and the neurons take it up. So it seems that this lactate is really important for high activity processes when neurons are undergoing plasticity. There's lots of firing, you're making lots of protein synthesis, and um, you need abundant amounts of energy. And this is when the astrocytes seem to be necessary. So for overall, the energy shuttling isn't so important until the neurons are kicked into high gear for learning and memory processes. And so, yeah, that's what we're seeing. And then with stress, what I've seen before is that just this capacity of astrocytes to keep the flow of energy going uh, is reduced. So they can kick out a little bit and then it kind of, I guess, tapers off and they just can't keep up with demand anymore after stress. So we're going to try and see, I mean, if what happens in the chronic stress conditions, if it's completely messed up, because we said it's all worked a little bit, mm. but just not enough. So yeah, we really don't know in the chronic stress how this works, but it seems, yeah, that there's it's really the feeding of the synapses is one of the huge factors. And could it be, you know, I'm just thinking of like a therapeutic intervention, you know, could you reintroduce that lactate yeah, back yeah. to the neurons? So, so yeah, we did that in, in brain slices where we're looking at synaptic activity and I was able to, I was, if I was able to put more lactate into the system, then it would, it would be completely back to normal again. So, <clears throat> so at least for the synaptic function, that seemed to be the limiting factor. And then all of how it's being released and what the signals are is kind of a bit more I guess not well understood, but relactate alone was able to rescue the effects of stress on synaptic function. So it's one of the, to me, it seems pretty cool that astrocytes are really responsible. So they're the ones, to me, um, the way I'm thinking of it now, they're the ones taking in the context. So there's lots of things in your blood, right? Like uh, stress hormones and all these things that get into the brain through the blood. So uh, kind of the way we're thinking about it now is that astrocytes can sense potentially the uh, the state of the animal, the context, the amount of energy that's in the blood, the amount of hormones, different types of hormones and things like this. And they're able to relay that information to neurons by maybe increasing or decreasing neuronal activity, you know, by uh, giving them or not giving them energy. Because I, I saw that somewhere you had kind of written during times of stress, it's like the, you know, electricity just kind of going down or the kind of air grid going down, like, which was a cool analogy, I thought. Exactly. They're all linked together and they share their energy and deliver it to hotspots. And so, yeah, the astrocytes are no longer having this big network. The connection between the astrocytes goes down. And yeah, so the energy grid is gone and you can't get the power where it needs to go. That was kind of how we were thinking about that. And is there, because this is um, maybe a bit of a naive question, I don't know, but in terms of acute or chronic stress it, does it affect memory or does it affect you know laying down memories in your brain yeah so yeah the acute stress will affect lots of different I guess it depends on the memory you're looking at if, it, if it's more let's say like a learning an exam or spatial memory that'll be more impaired but maybe your sensitivity to uh, negative memories let's say the chronic stress it seems that you're more you'll take on the negative memories like say like PTSD you know where the emotional negative emotional memories are much stronger than other memories and so you kind of have a this kind of overwhelms the system and you can't you're you're negative you're more susceptible to negative information it seems the negative memories are enhanced and all the other memories are dropped down so kind of uh the one we're working on now is different tones and trying to distinguish between a safe tone and a, and a negative tone and animals are able to do it in normal conditions and if you stress them out then they don't really differentiate very well between the negative tone and the positive tone let's say they're kind of mixing them up a little bit and they're afraid of both, whereas they only should be afraid of one. So you're kind of see this spill over, kind of everything gets a bit messed up and you're more fearful, I guess. And it's, it sounds, makes sense, right? In an adaptive sense, you want to adapt. If you're under chronic stress, maybe you're more likely to be, I guess, faced with another stressor later on. It seems to be kind of a recurrent theme. So you'd be more sensitive to different stressful events in order to survive, right? That's kind of the, 
the overall thing. So I think the susceptibility to these stressful events and you're hypersensitive and that's where you get then into the, you know, the anxiety, you know, your fear of just something, nothing in specific, right? Anxiety is just a fear of something, which you don't know what. And then the fear memories as well, where you're, you're really afraid of something that whereas most people may be not so afraid. So it's you heighten your fear and you increase your anxiety when you have those kinds of this heightened stress susceptibility. Do you think, you know, I suppose you're modeling everything in animal model, thinking about how this could benefit, I suppose, a patient or, or a human with anxiety or depression or PTSD, as, as you spoke about. How do you think like your research, even just in the future, I don't mean now, but like. Um... Yeah, yeah, I think and that's what we're trying to do. So here I, in, in Montreal, kind of lucky, there's a big brain bank. So they uh, at McGill actually but it's kind of it's Canadian actually worldwide platform as well and they have lots of human brain tissue from people who suffer from diseases such as depression right and and all different types of brain diseases basically we would love to eventually get some of this tissue from people who did have depression and people who didn't um, and just check in the brains of the people who I guess their, their course they died just check to see if the astrocytes are changing and there is evidence showing other labs are working on that in the human brain tissue showing that astrocytes do look different but of course, in, in post-mortem brain tissue, you can't tell if they're functionally different or not. So we're trying to model the function and see how it goes. And then once we have a nice picture of how it works in a live brain, we'd love to go into the brain banks and try and like say, okay, we see these changes. Does that match up with what we see in humans? And maybe then these could be good targets, right? Maybe we can target astrocytes then, because of course, you know, antidepressants and all these things are more, you know, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. They're all kind of the same neuronal mechanisms as how they work on neurons. And so we would love to see if we could just manipulate astrocytes and see if that could help the neurons along, right? If, if the problem really lies there. Yeah, that's so cool, because I suppose it's very hard to model any type of you know neuroscience in the brain, really, like a, yeah. a hu- in a human sample. Because I'm, I'm, you know, thinking of uh, like you know in our lab and in, in Ursula's lab, it's rheumatology. So you know we can get tissue from the knee, but yeah, it must be really hard because you, you can't do that in um, if you're looking at any type of brain disease. No, 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 exactly. So in these ones, yeah, you can't. I mean, some people do. They, of course, when they're with epilepsy, you can get human brain tissues. They remove the epileptic mm-hmm. tissue. They, you, some people do get human brain tissue, but yeah, in this case, at least we'll have human brain eventually if we can get the collaboration going down the road that will show people who had depression people who didn't and kind of check between the two and there is i mean there is something there for sure there's no doubt about that with astrocytes and so now it's up to us at the at the fundamental research level to figure out you know where's the chicken or the egg is it astrocytes change in response to neurons or the neurons changing response to astrocytes it's kind of like what what's happening what's coming first and so it's cool i mean in the lab we have lots of behavior going on now and all the cellular stuff is just getting up and running because I, at the beginning, behavior was really easy to get started, right? Just take a mouse, give it a learning and memory test, see if it learns well or not. And so that was just easier to get going in the in the short term. And now all of the fancy cellular equipment is starting to go online. So we can dig into, you know, the cellular changes and see if this matches the behavior. Yeah, because, you know, as I kind of alluded to earlier, you know, you started your lab just last year. And yep. how was that with COVID? And, you know, also just making the jump between postdoc and PI. And I think you're very young to be doing that. As in, it's really impressive. I'm so impressed by by this as well. So like, yeah, I just wondering like how how that whole experience was and did COVID kind of throw a spanner in the works at all? Um, well, talking about being young, I guess I, I never took any breaks really, right? Just short breaks in between. Each time, even during the PhD to postdoc transition, I again, the same thing. I was like, you know what, let's just go and start and I'll take holidays during my time. So I always took holidays. I wasn't just working nonstop, but 
I never took this big, maybe I regret that a little bit. I never took a big break of to go proper traveling. So yeah, then after Calgary, lots of working on the acute stress model and stuff, I started applying on the job market. And when I kind of felt I was somewhat ready and getting towards that, I wasn't really there yet, but I was getting towards the point, you know, I was, I guess my postdoc lasted six years. And so I was getting towards the point then where I was like, you know, I better start looking for jobs. You know, it's pre-COVID luckily. So I applied on the job market, applied to several jobs and I got two interviews, both in Montreal. And so the first job I didn't get, but a good friend of mine got it. So that's really cool. And the second job then uh, I got offered this job and so that's fantastic. I was delighted with the offer and everything. And kind of the, the paperwork came in just at Christmas 2019, like literally a day or two before or after Christmas, I can't remember which it was. And then, you know, March uh, 2020, and I'm like, oh no, do I still have a job, right? I didn't even, I wasn't even, so I was still in Calgary at this point. And I wasn't even sure whether this was going to, the COVID was throw, like whether it's, they would like just retract the offer or something. I didn't know. So I asked anyway, they're like, oh no, it's fine. You're good. And I had planned to move in June, 2020. And I was like, can I still come in June? Like, uh, yeah, it should, should be fine. You know, should be, oh, I don't see why not. And so, so yeah, all the movers were booked, you know, we, so we had, we had a car and my, me and my partner, we had two kids as well. So it was like, all right, let's do this. And yes, we had everything booked and ready to go. So we moved. And, and actually at the beginning in Calgary, what was kind of very scary, everybody, everything was closed down. You weren't, we weren't even going to see friends. You're we just staying on our own. Our second kid was just born the week of lockdown. And so, yeah, we just didn't know what was going on. So we kind of just kept to ourselves and it was kind of, I guess, I had lots of work to do. The paper was coming out and I was working on revisions of the paper from home. So it was good timing. But yeah, we just had everything booked and said, let's just do it. So there wasn't much COVID around, even if you were terrified about it. In Calgary, it wasn't that crazy. In Montreal, it was really bad. But in Calgary, it wasn't so bad at all. And so the movers would come and there was like, you know, this is June 2020. They'd come in, two young guys uh, with a van and they just had no masks. And it was like, okay, well, this is, you know, whatever. They're moving our stuff, I guess, whatever. So it's kind of, we just went with it. Um, and then came here and yeah, that, it kind of, everything went quite smoothly. The airports were empty, you know, there was no, not much stress on that front. So overall it was pretty smooth, but just kind of a lot of unknowns and yeah, I, did, I didn't know if the job was still going to be there. I didn't know what was going on. So how far is Calgary from Mon- Montreal? Uh, four hour flight. So it's like a, probably oh. about a three or four day drive if you wanted to drive it. So we didn't, not with two kids anyway. So just uh, the four hour flight and our stuff arrived, like let's say three weeks later. So we're on, you know, borrowed stuff. At that point, you have some friends here who gave us, you know, blow up mattress to sleep on and stuff until our stuff arrived. It was kind of a bit of a rough three, four weeks until our stuff came. Yeah. Especially with like an infant. It was a nightmare. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's a uh, big change for everybody. But yeah, then the whole summer I spent at home working on Grand Slam. I opened the lab 2020 in June. And so, yeah, the whole summer then I was just applying for the big grants, like, you know, fellowships, fellowship awards for myself. That's kind of the system here. PIs got fellowships from the province, from Quebec. And so working on that, working on other things at the same time and, and trying to get uh, people to come to the lab. So I had one student that did her honors thesis in the lab in Calgary. So I was kind of her, her unofficial supervisor. And so I said, you know, do you want to come after you finish your uh, honours? Do you want to come over to Calgary and do a master? Or sorry, to Montreal and do a master's. And so she was like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Why not? So again, kind of she just came out here and she's really enjoying it. She's like doing really well now. And so you had one person from the start, more or less, that planned to come. And then everybody else has just been lucky, you know. I needed a lab manager to do orders. The ordering system here was super complicated. So I put out a call to colleagues and they found someone who had a couple of hours a week. And it's all worked out. So... 
so yeah, now um, the COVID restrictions are somewhat lifted here. So yeah, it's, now everything's finally up and running. I guess it took it took until like maybe March or April of this year really to feel like, mm. okay, the lab's running properly almost a year, right? Until you feel like there's some sort of, like, I guess some sort of flow in the lab. That's like, I mean, you know, because I, I have spoke to people before and this is why I was excited to talk to you because you're just, you've just, you know, begun this journey of like starting up your own lab and being a PI. And, yeah. you know, it's it's a really tough transition from what I can tell. But obviously with COVID, the lag period between, you know, getting up and running and, and getting even just reagents and everything into the lab, I'm sure must have been like triply hard with COVID. So, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, Even people had to wait for visas a bit longer than usual. So I mean, some people took me six months to actually get here from the time I said, oh, yeah, come on, let's go. Took them a long time to even just to get to Canada. So and then, yeah, ordering stuff like even a fridge took us maybe eight months to get a fridge. Yeah. So it was because uh, of COVID, everyone's storing the vaccines in fridges and freezers. So uh, there was a real shortage of like specific things. And I guess there still is, but it's not as bad anymore. But these little, I guess, little delays add up over time. You know, I'm still seeing kind of, okay, we're only getting to this point now because we had to wait so long for that equipment. So, so yeah, with COVID and all, overall, to be honest, starting a lab and everything, I was I guess I made the most of it. I just tried to work hard on the grants and get those things out of the way so that now I can focus on on the experiments and do experiments still. I'm still doing experiments uh, now and again. So yeah, just trying to do it all. And it's it's tough starting up. There's so many decisions to make every day and about everything. You have to decide on every, maybe like at the beginning, it's 10, 20 decisions a day. You know, what, what kind of, I don't know, uh, pipettes do you want to buy? What brand? You know, everyone else likes these ones. Which one do you like? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I always use that one. I'll buy that one, you know, so it's it's kind of a decision fatigue at the beginning. It's exhausting just deciding on every single thing. And now I feel like most of the decisions have made all the minor decisions and everything. So now it's just people in the lab and they're starting to decide things. I'm like, you know, you pick whatever one you want. You like that spatula, buy that spatula. I don't <laughs> mind, you know, you don't have to do it my way. Maybe your way is better, you know, so. Yeah. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah. And I suppose falling off from that, like, what do you love most about your job and what you do? Well, it's cool now. To, so from the, I guess, as a PhD student and postdoc, you're working on your own project. And that's really cool. And you're really involved in it. But now I can be involved in more than one project, which I, I really enjoy, you know, seeing people take, well, get some ideas together. They start rolling with it and they start just collecting data and seeing if it's working or not and which is the best direction to go. So I can advise on multiple projects and just being part of a few different things is, is quite refreshing. I've always been kind of one track mind on projects. Um, and so, yeah, now it's really refreshing to, to be involved in one study on it's emotional memories and one study on sleep and one study just on synaptic function, just, like, you know, synaptic stuff. And so there's multiple things going on. So that's really cool. I really enjoy, I have, you know, you have lots of ideas as a scientist in general. So now I'm kind of in the position to be able to, I guess, to help people work on these different ideas, find the common interest. Okay, you like sleep, let's do something on sleep. I like sleep too, you know? So um, we kind of, yeah, developing multiple ideas at the same time is something that I haven't, just have not been able to do before this job, right? That's a cool part of the PI position for sure. Do you find, you know, that you are enjoying moving away from the lab a little bit more? Um, it's okay. Yeah, it's not too bad. <laughs> it's hard. It's good and bad, right? I mean, there's nothing better than collecting data and, and getting a result right you're collecting your data and you analyze it and then you're like oh look there it is like even last week i was doing some behavioral experiments and i was just so keen maybe before as a postdoc i would have done the experiment and and procrastinated on the analysis maybe started the next experiment but now you know i'm just really keen to see the data see the results so now i'm much more i guess on top of things when it comes to that so i'm doing the experiments and straight away analyzing and seeing what's happening 
uh, and thinking about that. So I, I, I do, I kind of really miss that having that more regularly, the, you know, seeing things first almost, you know, you, oh my God, that worked out. We had that idea and it's, that is the way it is. But then, yeah, coming to the other side as the PI uh, and doing all the writing and these things, it's, yeah, it's a lot more thinking um, and a lot more putting your ideas into context, which I have to do now much more than before. So that that's enjoyable. But yeah, I think it's it's a huge transition, and so I'm getting still getting used to all the writing and all of these things. I don't I don't dislike it. I always did enjoy writing somewhat. So I still hope that I can balance at least for the next few years trying to balance like you know just the actual professor work teaching and writing grants and all these things and correcting things for students or whatever as well as maybe even still doing my own mini project i would love to keep my hands in the lab and not get i mean i already see that i'm getting out of touch i don't know where anything is so i let people organize it the way they use it on the day-to-day basis so i don't know where things are in my lab but i mean i've bought a label maker and told them to label all the drawers so i can find stuff but yeah kind of I'm fe- already feeling it starting to get the separation yeah. and I suppose do you ever just because I know we were we talked about you kind of coming back to France maybe do you ever think you will come back to Ireland or do you think your um time over in Canada has kind of cemented your love for for that country well so I mean I always I guess that's a big it's kind of a tough thing when you move away as for science I mean people say you should do it it's great for your career and I guess in my case it was but I think you give up a lot. You're giving up a lot. All my family's back in Ireland, I guess, you know, everybody there. So it's it's really tough that I've been away now, I guess, 11 years I've left Ireland. And so it's it's quite some time. So I kind of feel like you, although you, you're developing your career and you've got that passion and love, you're giving up a lot at the same time. Uh, you know, my family have get-togethers. I'm, I'm not there. I just, I can't be there, right? And so now maybe it's a bit more easy with Zoom and these things a bit more common to kind of do video talks with people, whereas before it wasn't that common, I guess. But but yeah, I think when it comes to Ireland, I do still miss it, you know, especially when you get, you know, you you're, you're get a grant rejection or something like this and you're down in the dumps and you just wish you could like see family and friends from like oh, whatever, close family and friends still, that doesn't change, that never goes away, at least not for me. So I still miss it, but, um, but yeah, for now, I think it's got some good opportunities here to do stuff in, in the right environment with, you know, with the right people and right colleagues. So I'm not even sure. I, I never, I never applied to jobs in Ireland. I didn't. I think it's a super competitive market, to be honest, right? Because there aren't too many jobs, and so it's it's really competitive. But I mean, not to say it's not competitive in Canada, right? This, but I think yeah, it's. it's I would. I think I still it's in the back of my mind somewhere. But for now, I'm quite happy just staying put. I've moved around a lot, so I just want to sit still for a few minutes, right? And yeah and stop moving for a bit that's kind of my plan hopefully stay here for quite some time and then and I'm kind of halfway back that was that was kind of the one of the compromises right Montreal compared to Calgary Calgary's west Canada okay so now we're eastern Canada it's much closer to home flights are cheaper so hopefully be able to visit a bit more regularly than before that's kind of that's one of the ideas of of coming halfway home when was the last time you were in Ireland I presume it's pre-pandemic was it yeah I guess it must be honestly it must be about two years to be honest god it's mad isn't it yeah it flies by so i I definitely i got yeah it must be at least two years maybe even more so i can't get the precise date but yeah we still call people video calls quite often with you know family and all this but to be fair like i met up with an old roommate over the weekend who lives in the same county as me and i hadn't seen her since 2019 so you know the pandemic really (laughs) did affect you could be in the same county then and you mightn't see people but i suppose Kieran, my last question for you, which I tend to ask everyone now, is, you know, if you were into scientists and if this wasn't your career, um, 
where do you think your life would have ended up or what different career path do you think you might have had? One of my really naive kind of think back on what I was thinking of doing between either going to a PhD or what I would do at that kind of turning point. Um, I was thinking about trying to become a professional cyclist, right? I mean, that was one of my, uh, I, I never had any reason to believe that I could have made it. It was just kind of, <laughs> one of these dream ideas. I liked cycling bikes. So I was like, you know, I could make a living out of this. So yeah, I mean, I, I did lots of cycling and stuff in, in Trinity and I was there as well towards the end. And then when I did my PhD, I was cycling a whole lot. I was uh, a cycling, I was doing racing and stuff in France. Um, and so I guess realistically, if I wasn't a scientist, I'd probably be working as a bike mechanic. That would probably be like in a shop selling coffees and, and I got no fixing puncture tires. Maybe that would have been my career. I wasn't a scientist, I imagine. Oh, you could have been in the Olympics or something for cycling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, listen, it's been so lovely to chat to you um, and thanks again for coming on. And as I said to you earlier, you were the first recording um, I've had back for season four. So it's been nice to, to get back chatting to people. So, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Great. Thanks a lot for the chat. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor Biosciences, now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 